0: Let us pray. Grant to the Lord that because we have met together here today, life may grow greater for those who have lost faith in it, simpler for those who are confused by it, more secure for those who would escape it, happier for those who may be tasting the bitterness of it, safer for those who are feeling the peril of it, more friendly for those who are feeling the loneliness of it, and holier for all to whom life may have lost its dignity, its beauty, and its meaning. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. That was a long gospel reading. For the record, Marilyn Mr. does not normally use the lectern when when she proclaims the gospel, but that cover, that gold cover that our gospel book in is heavy. And you try holding that for 41 verses. There are lots of different ways in which sermons come together. And in the lifetime of a preacher... You preach a couple of different kinds of sermons. There's the kind of sermon that you preach where you read the gospel selection for the day and you have no words. You just have no idea what you're going to preach on. Sometimes those are the best sermons. Most sermons that a preacher will preach are going to be sort of like a solid B, maybe a B-plus material. Not earth-shattering, but like definitely didn't make anybody's day worse. You know? Every now and again, you'll preach just a stunningly spectacular sermon. And it's the kind of sermon where, like, you know as the preacher that it was good, and then also everyone sitting out there also knew that it was good. And then you have the kind of sermon where you have so much that you want to say that you have, like, six sermons, and it's all really good. And so what you do is rather than Bringing those together into one succinct sermon, you just preach a really long sermon that is, in fact, six separate sermons. This is what you get today. (laughs) Now, in all fairness, the committee that put together our lectionary reading just gave us too much. So, take it up with them. What you're going to get are going to be a small handful of just little ponderings and wonderings because I could not find a place to land this morning. So, my first question of our gospel is this Is being blind bad? Is being blind a sin? Jesus' disciples asked the question. They were the ones who started all of this. Bad, bad disciples. Then, like the whole town gets in on it. Who sinned? Was it the man? Was it his parents? Somebody sinned. Was it Jesus? Was it the Pharisees? But definitely there's some sin going on, and we need to figure it out. There is sin, anxiety happening here. But it makes some certain assumptions that I think that we should push back against. What does Jesus say about the man's blindness? Jesus says that he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. And very explicitly says Neither this man nor his parents sinned." So is being blind bad? Does it make you sinful just to be blind? In the same way, does having a mental illness or a physical or mental disability make you sinful or bad? Somehow incomplete? Broken, in need of fixing. I firmly believe that God's understanding of perfection is infinitely more expansive and infinitely more generous than anything that we could possibly imagine. What Beautiful work of God's could be revealed in this man who was blind. But this leads to my second pondering here. Why do we seek to see sin? Think about it. This whole, this I mean, one, two, three, four. Eight words on this whole page. Nine, if you count the number four. Everything else is pure gospel. And everything contained in there is someone seeking out sin. And y'all, don't we do that? We look around at the people around us, and we need to figure out why they are the way that they are. Because the way that they are isn't always great. Oh, good, she's not here. My kids, yesterday I was telling them a story about someone who was having a moment in a store. was feeling really upset and frustrated about this order that had gotten wrong. And I was explaining this to my kids, and my son Crawford, who's eight, says, oh, she's a Karen. I was making sure that Karen was not here. And I started to laugh. And if you're not familiar with what a Karen is, your life is fine, and don't Google it. I started to laugh, but then I thought, you know, all we did was just boil this person down to this one moment, this one sort of interaction of which we only get to see such a limited version of. And after sort of chuckling, I said, well, you know, I'm not really sure what their name was, you know. And I said, but I think that they were having a really hard time. I think they were really overwhelmed. And you know, when I get really overwhelmed, I'm not normally my best self. I can make some bad choices. But goodness, we sure do want to just boil people down to that one thing, and then we want them to stay there. That person at the CVS line in the eyes of my son, Crawford, always going to be a Karen. She doesn't get to evolve or develop or be a full person. She gets to be that one moment. Which leads me to my next question. Can people change? Can you change? Can other people change? This man in our story, he was painted with a like, it wasn't just like one brush, he was painted with one brush with like one single fiber. Sure, that's what brushes are made out of. One single fiber hair of a brush. So singular, so non-dimensional. And he changed. Like, literally. He went from having no sight to having sight. And that made people really uncomfortable. Now let's start off by saying, no one liked him because he was blind. He was an outcast, He was a beggar. He was not able to participate in his family structure, in the community structure. He was an outcast for being blind. He gets his eyesight, and what happens to him? Well, kind of down at the bottom here, we get told that he gets cast out again from the community. And I can't help but wonder, if we can change, why can't others? Why do we have to hold people? Like, think about someone you went to high school with. Have they evolved? Have they changed? Think about someone you see every single day. We have to hold people in a certain container that is, you know, a Diane-shaped container or a Katie-shaped container. And goodness gracious, if someone moves beyond that container, how uncomfortable it makes us. And I think if we're really clear, When we move out of our own container, it makes us very uncomfortable. Why can't people change? Here's my next wondering. I only have a couple more. What's the man's name? Anybody? You heard it a lot. And actually what I'll say is, you didn't hear it, ever. This man has three names. Blind man, man born blind, former blind man. Not even his parents would say his name. It makes me so incredibly sad that there was so much separating this man from his community, that they couldn't even say his name. Lest he get them dirty. Lest somehow his brokenness be transferred onto them by the mere speaking of his name. Here's my next one, second-to-last, I promise. Who rejoiced with him when he received his sight? Who rejoiced when this thing, which had caused him to be separate and dirty and unclean and unable to be in community, is gone. Who rejoiced with him? Who welcomed him back into the fold and into the community? Who embraced him and shouted great hosannas because his sight had been restored—a a, like a, a miracle that even we would see. And y'all, 2023, our ability to see miracles very bad, just poor. But even we would recognize this as a miracle. And who rejoiced with him? Not a single one of them. But they sure did complain. If the broken stay broken, then we who are not broken, then we always get to stay fixed, good, perfect. But when the broken is fixed, suddenly we are faced with a reality that fixed things could also get broken. I can't help but think how clutched by fear this community was, that one who was blind, who was given sight, received no rejoicing, no welcoming, but only disdain. Here's the last one. Jesus walked along. He saw a man blind from birth, and he gives him his sight. Jesus finds this man on the outside, on the margins, sees him. And heals him. This man finds himself at the end of our 41 verses in the same place. Life totally changed, but still in the same place. On the outside, cast out. And what does Jesus do? Jesus heard that they had driven him out and he found him. Jesus got out of whatever he was in and went and looked and found him. And the man's response to being found is to say, Yes, Lord, I believe. The Greek word that John uses in his gospel for believe is used over 100 times in John's gospel. He uses it over 100 times. And do you know what it means? It means to be in relationship with God. That's what belief is. Belief is in relationship with God. The man is saying, yes, I choose to be with you. It's not a head thing. This isn't some sort of intellectual understanding that this man has, but it is an understanding that he comes to embody Through his interaction and encounter with Jesus. But look how many others encountered Jesus that day. The Pharisees, this group of of people who are Jewish, there are crowds of people. There are the disciples, and one, one comes to believe. I think about our time that we have in this service, where literally Jesus is in the midst of us, at the altar, in our hymnals. In our scripture, in our prayer books, in you and in me, in the walls of this beautiful space, God is here and we are encountered and we have met and we can be changed. My biggest fear, my biggest fear, and just to be utterly selfish. Not even thinking about you, but thinking just about me? What if I don't believe? What if I walk out of these doors after encountering Christ and I willingly and intentionally choose? Anything but a relationship with Him. I want to walk out these doors and I want to say, I believe. And I want it to be true when I walk out these doors in the same way that I want it to be true by the time I get into my car, by the time I get home, by the time I'm cooking dinner for my kids, by the time I show back up here tomorrow morning for work. I want to believe every moment of my entire life. I want to be in that relationship. I want to be changed by my encounter with Christ. But according to this story, the odds are not in my favor. And not in yours either. And so here's my last pondering. And no, we're not doing an altar call or anything, so just relax. My last pondering is this What does it take to truly believe, to choose that relationship with God? The answer is found in our psalm. And the answer actually comes just a few verses after this in chapter 10. Where Jesus tells this same blind man, now with sight restored, I am the good shepherd. I find my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. And you are mine what does it take to believe I think it's really silly that we think we have the choice amen